0: Hello and welcome to Blight Stories in the Key of Decay and Repair. I am Sean Williamson. This is the first episode of the third season, and since we left you at the end of the summer, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, America, and the world have provided much disaster, insanity, joy, and wonder. And as we take this hill on the holiday season, there are many reasons to be hopeful. We have a new incoming president. Vaccines for COVID-19 will begin distribution any day now. And if all works out, then schools, businesses, theaters, music venues, bars, and restaurants will be able to open safely and in mass. But we are also in a very precarious situation. Thousands of people have died, gotten sick, or fallen into poverty. Many clubs, theaters, restaurants, and bars have already closed. More will close still, and many of those will never reopen. The world is damaged in a way that will take a long time and a lot of work, to fix, Which is not to despair entirely. There will be a rebuild, and we can all help. To keep our cultural landscape from being one Walmart, Applebee's, and Home Depot after another, we must all pitch in. One club near and dear to Milwaukee is Cactus Club in Bayview. Cactus Club has long been a staple of the independent music scene. In its decades-long history, the club has hosted bands like Bright Eyes and Interpool and the White Stripes, as well as supporting the absolute and most kick-ass local bands like Call Me Lightning, Sense By Man, and a million others. Cactus Club recently changed ownership to Kelsey Kaufman, who is an absolute gem of a community organizer, musician, and person. Kelsey had already been doing programming for the club long before she took ownership, and has continued and furthered the tradition of Cactus Club as a crucial, inclusive institution of performing art in Milwaukee. Kelsey has been a part of the Wisconsin punk scene since she was like 10 years old, and if I'm exaggerating, it is only slightly. I know this because Kelsey booked shows and shared bills with my high school band, Farewell to Twilight. Anyway, last week the Cactus Club was left off a list of 96 other venues across Wisconsin that received the live entertainment grant from the Department of Administration. While that is a bummer, Kelsey, the amazing staff and family they've put together, and the local art community are putting on. Cactus are selling drink bottles and really dope merchandise, and for the time being have moved their programming, music, and films, and lectures online. Cactus Club cannot go. Communities like this are vital to the survival of not only independent art, but to the very soul of the cities they inhabit. So, this season on Blight, myself and others will pop in to talk about Cactus Club but also punk music and art and why those things are important to us. And please, and I will remind you of this often, check out the Cactus website, purchase merchandise, become a member of their Patreon, where you will find a lot of inspired and inspiring performances. Season 3! Yeah! I'm excited. Uh, I'm excited to bring you more Blight stories, Stories about love and heartbreak, stories about the revolutionary power of art, gardening, cycling. Stories about what is still within our grasp. Stories about things that make up this good life. Okay. Love you guys. Our first story comes from Jessica Hoyer. Jessica is a behavior analyst and personal trainer. Her interest in writing has been reignited by her recent fight with cancer and glaring racial injustices in America. She lives in Chicago with her fiancé and two children, enjoying vegan cooking, embroidery, and painting. Here's Jessica.
1: Spring, in quarantine. The spring of quarantine, I laid in bed sick. Video footage leaked of Ahmad Arbery being stalked and murdered. Breezes, sunshine, and neighborhood sounds filtered in through the window at the head of our bed. Hours turned into days, turned into weeks, turned into months. I could hear the woman in the condo directly across the street yell at her husband, "'Fuck you!' as I heard her aggressively slide the screen door shut. She also took work calls on the deck in a calm, steady, commanding voice, so different than the one she used with her husband." The 20-something hipster neighbors three houses down had befriended our downstairs neighbors and would congregate and laugh in front of the gate, always making plans, never wearing masks, standing two feet apart, their youth suspending thoughts of their own mortality while I lay in bed confronted with mine. The abusive boyfriend lived one block away, but his girlfriend often sought refuge here. She was trying to escape, he always threatened to throw her stuff out on the street if she didn't come with him. I imagined ways I could give her a message. I never came up with a solid plan. She was never alone. The single family home built in the wave of gentrification had a nanny share. The oldest child would ride his bike three houses down before being called back to the house. I saw the other mom drop her son off in the morning, rushing into their house, probably rushing a goodbye the separation of some essential worker and her child. Maybe she's saving lives, or maybe she works in real estate. I can hear all the backyard parties, too loud to be socially distanced. I fought cancer, but I felt like I was fighting chemo, fighting the cure, not the disease. The three little neighbor girls living with three generations in one house, hanging on to their home, not succumbing to gentrification and rising property taxes, kept yelling, Food for sale! one Saturday afternoon. I never looked to see what they were selling. I played Scrabble on my phone. I won every game. I never lost once. Am I really that good? I thought. I spent hours looking at other people live their lives on social media. I wept, I prayed, I mourned for George Floyd. I turned the fan off and on a dozen times as hot flashes and then chills would overtake me. Sheet off, sheet on, blanket on, blanket off, sheet off, fan on. I talked on the phone, reconnecting with old dear friends and getting closer with friends I had neglected. My eyelids swelled up to the point I couldn't keep them open. It's just another side effect. That happens sometimes on chemo, they would say. I developed a head tremor, which forced me into bed for longer hours. It made me cry and it pissed me off. My dignity was being poisoned out of me. A car parade went down the street when the neighbor girl turned 13. And again, a couple weeks later, when her sister graduated, they waved from the sidewalk. On the day George Floyd was buried, the forecast didn't call for rain, but it poured, and afterwards the sun came out. I woke up sick in the middle of the night. Another car parade, the weekend the Puerto Rican Day Parade was supposed to be held. Reggaeton flooded through the window, the bass vibrating the window frame. Fake sirens, horns blaring, prideful shouting. Jay brought me ice water and asked if I was okay. He held my hand while I cried. He performed CPR on me and called 911 when my heart stopped and I passed out on the bathroom floor. He handed me meds and asked for me to label them. He never once made me feel bad. I felt guilty I never offered him the same. Some people just know how to love easier than others. I pulled out clumps of my hair as they inched their way towards the floor like they were trying to escape me. I filled up the bathroom garbage two times with my hair. I slept on a satin pillowcase. I woke up ten times a night on steroids. Other times I woke up with stomach cramps, running to the bathroom with diarrhea. My son and daughter would come to check on me, report the day's happenings, and give me hugs. I wept. I prayed. I mourned for Richard Brooks. Sheet off. Sheet on. Blanket on. Blanket off. Sheet off. Fan on. I looked at mastectomy pictures trying to prepare and comfort myself. You won't be a mutant. Uh, Maybe they can save your nipples. Maybe you'll end up looking better. Sometimes tears welled up in my eyes from the nothingness of laying in bed all the time. And not remembering how I found the energy to be doing all the time. Like I was getting glimpses of a past life. I wept. I prayed, I mourned for Brianna Taylor, sheet off, sheet on, blanket on, blanket off, sheet off, fan on, it's her birthday, my immune system is too weak to attend a protest, I pull out another clump of my hair and drop it on the floor, too tired to walk to the garbage can. Fireworks explode like it's the 4th of July, but it's not. It's Juneteenth. Better to celebrate emancipation from oppression than celebrate the nationalism that masks the sordid history that allows black people to be murdered in the street while I lay in bed. I wake in the night with a tremendous weight, a tremendous weight that sometimes hits our subconscious so hard it won't allow you to stay asleep. Tears fall out of my right eye. I hear the soft flick as they hit my satin pillowcase. I tilt my head to the left and they spill out of my left eye, pulling in my ear. I wipe them away. Brianna Taylor was asleep in her bed. I hope no black people are murdered tonight. Sheet off. Sheet on. Blanket on. Blanket off. Sheet off. Fan on. Naked.
0: Our next story comes from Robert Tretton. Robert is a Wisconsin native who lives in Hanoi, Vietnam and works there as an ESL teacher. Since graduating from UW-Milwaukee in 2015, he's traveled to Alaska, New Zealand, Vietnam, and most recently Nepal. He writes and takes photos wherever he is. His work has appeared in the Coromandel Town Chronicle. Here's Robert. March 23rd, 2020.
2: What should we bring her? We should bring something, Tista said. I think we just leave a donation at the end. I said, like a question. How about some yak cheese, though, too, she suggested. We sat in the morning sun, having coffee and chocolate croissants outside the bakery in the small mountain village of Manang, Nepal. Behind and far above the stone-stacked building, snow dust blew from the top ridge of Annapurna III, lifting off the mountain and swirling fiercely but silently in the blue sky. At our level, 20-some goats walked by, on the frost-bitten grass, followed by a squinting Nepali man in an old feathered hat. It was acclimatization day for us. Trekking the Annapurna circuit, you take a day or two to pause and let your head adjust to the altitude. Tista and I turned ours into a full acclimatization weekend because the doctors in the village said it was wise to do so. It was also wise, we were told, to take a day trek somewhere, nearby. To go up in elevation a few hundred meters, if possible. Then return and sleep lower down than your highest point for that day. Your body appreciated this courtesy. Tista and I decided to trek to a mountainside cave, where a Tibetan Buddhist nun, an Ani, had been living for the last 38 years. At the next table, a few other trekkers discussed what the rest of the world was discussing. Something-something, coronavirus. Something-something, unbelievable. Italy, something-something, New York. We felt very far away from it, though, there in Manang, protected by the snowy Annapurna's. Everything around us signaled our remoteness, the gentle rumbling of prayer wheels being turned. Luck being turned good. Bells sounding from the necks of slow moving, grass munching cows. Fresh air and fraying prayer flags. Dogs sleeping in sunny spots. The smell of pine incense being burned in the mornings. At dusk, a hundred birds swooping together in murmuration. I looked up toward where we'd be going, scanning for an indication of the cave. See that whiteness there, and those flags? Tista said and pointed high up. I leaned in, and my eyes followed where her finger was aiming. The baker said it's there, she said. See buckthorn bushes lined parts of the trail, the berries of which can be made into a tasty, pucker-causing drink. The air grew thinner. Our hands were cracked dry, stuffed into our down jacket pockets cold when we stopped walking, warm when we resumed, ears stinging, eyes watering, boots dusty, two colorfully clothed bodies exposed on the side of parched rock face, following the thread-like trail, 20 steps at a time, before pausing to recuperate and appreciate. Manang village soon came fully into view, situated before some of the most prominent peaks of the Annapurna Range, in the valley of the Marshangdi River. The glacial Gangapurna Lake, a teardrop puddle at the base of Annapurna 3, was visible just north of the village. How much further, Tista said, winded, after making it to the end of another switchback. Halfway there, I think, I said. I'm dying. You're doing great. We'll make it, I said, and handed her our stickered-up now Jean. Another trekker met us on his way down, a tall, skinny guy with new-looking gear and rectangle glasses. He wore a green knit hat with fuzzy-ended tassels hanging down to his collarbones. He smiled at us. Did you meet the nun? I asked him. No, she wasn't there. I went up there, but nobody home, he said with an Eastern European accent. Wonder where she could be. He shrugged with both thumbs tucked under the straps of his backpack. How much farther, Tista asked? Maybe 45 minutes, I think, he said looking back up the way he'd come. I looked too toward the small stupa outside the cave, the whiteness from below now distinguishable as something, a shrine like a beacon bright white in the sun against the drab rock, festooned with fraying and faded prayer flags. I thought, how long did he wait around? Ten minutes? And where could an old woman who lives in a cave otherwise be? Well, I'm going down now, the messenger said, still wearing the same smile he'd approached with. Happy trails, I said. He walked on, and we watched him go for a minute, His hat tassels bounced off him with each step. Far below, we saw another figure in all red, inching her way up the trail from the village with a satchel bag and the aid of a stick. We waited for her a little further on in a semi-flat area where a small tea house stood, now shut for the season. It opened, I suppose, during the high season, when more trekkers were on the circuit. Still, it seemed strange that there would be anything up there, almost 4,000 meters above sea level. Then again, it was no less strange that we were there, resting, expecting a cave-dwelling Buddhist nun to round the corner and, well, I didn't know what after that. I took the lens cap from my 35mm camera and walked to the edge of where we could stand down below, Manang looked like a Christmas figurine village, and across the valley from us stood Annapurna 3, a wall of ice-covered rock, the result of an unimaginable, drawn-out collision between tectonic plates very many years ago. I imagined watching the event on Fast Forward from where I stood. The rumble in my bones, grating, cracking, exploding, destruction and creation. Rocks shaking loose and tumbling down. Then the great catastrophe is over and the dust settles and it's quiet. And there's the newborn mountain, phlegmatic and awesome. I wound the film on my camera and framed the mountain. I held my breath and pressed down with my finger. A fraction of a second of sunlight blazed the image of it onto film. Batista sat waiting in the sun, probably getting a chance to admire everything after catching her breath. She was a true admirer of nature and a natural admirer of truth. But it's hard to admire anything when you feel like you can't get a full breath. Not enough oxygen going around the body and so fatigue and headaches and doubt. One step at a time, sure, but there are so many steps. We were told the nun in the cave would give us a blessing for the rest of our steps, for safe passage over Thuring La Pass. We looked down, but couldn't see her anymore. In a blind spot, hidden by turns on the path. Or else she got tired and evanesced and rematerialized back in her cave. Why not? I'd heard stranger stories about Tibetan Buddhist masters one who held his breath for three days. He knew how many breaths he had left in his lifetime and he wanted to die on an astrologically favorable day. There's also the fabled rainbow body, something achieved by disciplined meditation practitioners whereby the body is said to shrink significantly upon dying and smell of perfume and rainbows will appear in the sky. These things, spoken of like you or I would talk about the brown bear we saw on our trip out west. But then the Ani came around the corner and greeted us. Namaste, she said, and put her hands together at her heart. We did the same. She invited us to have a seat right where we were, just off the path. She wore glasses and a red winter hat. She had on a fleece sweater that said Australian Outback on the chest. Her lower half was covered by her red robe down to her feet and her simple rope-soled shoes. She set down her bag and pulled an orange from it, began peeling. She offered us some and we shared it together. Name? She asked us with happy eyes. We told her our names and she repeated them to us with a smile. She pointed to herself and said, Ani Choten. Ani? I asked. Choten, she said. Ani is Lama woman, woman Lama. She spoke some English and a little Hindi, which Tista speaks, and we arrived at understandings like this, with pieces of English, pieces of Hindi, and pieces of Nepali that had similarities to Hindi. She guessed or intuited correctly that Tista was from Calcutta. I said I was from the U.S., and she told us she had been to New York and Kentucky because she had nieces in those states. She preferred Kentucky, New York being very noisy. When language failed, Ani Choten would gesture or just smile. There was never much time between her smiles. We finished the orange And she gestured to her supplies bag, to me, then up towards her cave. She meant, would you mind carrying my bag the rest of the way up? I shouldered it and she directed thankful prayer hands at me. Then she stood and led us. legs seemed to wave in slow motion in the late morning breeze. The white stone stupa, tiered like a wedding cake, looked much bigger up close, standing firm in a small garden front yard, bordered by a stacked stone retaining wall, waist high. Another wall had been built in front of the cave, made of the same stones and caked securely with mud, an opening left for entry. A wood sign out front said, Welcome, Gampa, with five old prayer wheels just above it. We followed her up a few steps behind the wall, then took our boots off outside the entrance to the actual cave, the entrance to her actual home. And it was quite homey, not so spartan, with objects on wooden shelves, some flowers and singing bowls. We saw pictures of the Buddha, pictures of past visitors, pictures of the Dalai Lama, and pictures of an old man with the same smile as Ani Choten, joyful. Tista handed Ani the yak cheese, which she accepted. She gave us well-worn cushions to sit on and went to another room and began heating a kettle. The air in the cave was fresh, incense lingered. The walls were shaped stone, but covered almost every inch by wood shelving. Tonka paintings, orange ceremonial scarves, and other Tibetan fabrics. I sat there reverentially, straight-backed and clear-minded, without trying to be. Mindful of my blinks. Slower. Tista and I smiled at one another. She looked like she could be sitting on a park bench on a beautiful day, observing and participating, calmly pleased by all. I wondered if I looked like that too. Ani Choten returned and sat with us, poured hot water into small mugs and mixed in instant coffee. Tista asked how often she walked down to Manang. Three weeks, one time, she said, food, maybe doctor. This time, doctor, he say, no sugar. She told us this as she dunked a spoonful of sugar into her coffee and giggled. We sipped and she pushed a round tin of biscuits toward us. I took a sugar-coated one. Is this your father? I asked about the photograph of the old man nearest me. In the photo the man had a short white goatee and wore a pointed cloth hat, faded tan, red and blue. His eyes were practically closed. Lines fanning at the corners in a squint that accompanied his smile. Father, Anichoten confirmed, six Lama Prakan Die three years. Now, Anichoten, seven. She held up seven fingers, seven generations of occupancy. In Hindi, Tista asked who would be after her. She spoke and Tista translated for me. She says... Right now, there's no one. She doesn't know. But this didn't seem to bother her. Nothing did. The conversation waned as we finished our coffees. Tista asked if there was a place where we could meditate. Meditation, she asked, pleased at the idea. She stood and led us out the door. To the left, she stepped up, a simple wood ladder, and we followed her up onto a natural shelf in the rock, open to the air and a panoramic view of the Annapurna Range lacerating the sky. The surface was big enough for three or four people to stand on. She dragged a two-seater bench cushion to the edge of the ledge. Meditation, she said, and descended the ladder, going back into her cave. Batista and I sat side by side and looked out at the mountains. We were higher than the tree line on Annapurna 3, higher up than I'd ever been. I closed my eyes and breathed in and out until eventually all the thinking slowed and my mind untangled itself, aware of sensations like a tingling foot, cold hands, sore back, a curl of my hair tickling my forehead in the breeze. We heard two other trekkers coming. They walked through the garden and announced themselves to Ani Choten. She invited them in as well. I could hear their voices faintly from where we sat, like living statues. Another couple. They didn't stay long, 30 minutes maybe. They asked if the man in the photo was her father. After a while, there was silence. I suppose they received their blessing then, just before leaving. When their steps and their voices faded away down the trail, I stirred first and opened my eyes to the brightness and the beauty, the quiet immediacy of everything, like putting on corrective lenses, seeing rightly, an eagle circling a field near Manang, hunting, Tista sitting next to me, hands open on her knees, merely being there, then opening her eyes. It's been nine months now since our visit to Ani Choten. After some tea and Tibetan bread, she blessed us, put necklaces around our necks, and wrote our names, saying she'd pray for us. We thanked her and said goodbye after tying our boots. A few days and many miles later, Tista and I walked over the Thurang Pass and arrived in Muktinath, which means liberation, and learned that Nepal had enforced a nationwide lockdown due to COVID-19. Three days later, we were evacuated via bus from the Annapurna region, a nauseating eight-hour ride out of the mountains. In the middle of the night, we arrived in Pokhara, where we stayed for the next six months. I worked on a book, and Tista painted and taught English online. We cooked together. We played with Izzy, the dog next door, until she ran away. We did crosswords, read novels and the news, watching as our home countries struggled and struggled more. We drank wine and chatted on Zoom with our families. We had dinner with our neighbors, laughing and feeling normal and connected for a short while. We walked around pretty pokra, wearing masks, taking pictures. We talked with locals at the bakery, the vegetable stands, and the cafes. Coronavirus and the fear of coronavirus had spread through bodies and minds there and around the world. It kept people in their homes and out of work or school. Though in Nepal there were more suicides than COVID deaths. On clear mornings, we could see the mountains from our bedroom window, where we had been, where Ani Choten still was. Choten means shrine, I learned, which fits... To go there is to pay homage to the shrine of her, and she'll shuffle around and make you tea and bread and treat you like a fellow shrine come to visit. I've been there. I can go there any time, but I remember and I forget. Every day I remember and I forget where the shrine is, where the shrine within the shrine is.
0: Thank you for listening to Blight Stories in the Key of Decay and Repair. I am your host, Sean Williamson. Please do check out the Cactus Club website and support them. Show them some love. Do it for you. Do it for me. Do it for love. Do it for art. As always, check out Blight on Apple Pods and leave a review. We have t-shirts that are available through our website, uh, blightstories.com. They were designed by Sean Stefani, number one hero, Sean Stefani. Show mix today by Shane Olivo. Thank you, Shane. Playing us out and providing show music for this episode was X Harlow. You already heard Ascension from their excellent new record, Anchorite. You can find these songs and many others at exharlow.bandcamp.com. This is Pyre.